This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, a conflagration of authors, AI, audio and infringement. Oh. So... <laughs> This is not intended to be a really heavy topic, but, you know, hopefully if you're one of our writing listeners, you have been busy creating immersive worlds and loving the process of writing so much that you haven't been dragged into the AI debate. Um, We really do wish that peace of mind for you and for everyone else, in fact. Yeah. Chances are, however, that you have heard at least a few anxious mutterings. Um, It is pretty hard to avoid them if you are online. And we'd like to do something to sort of ameliorate that, which is why I went digging into the subject. Because quite frankly, um, it's unprecedented. We've got no frame of reference for a lot of the developments that are happening. And it is potentially a bit frightening. And so let, let's drag that, that out into the light of day and have a look at it. And we'll probably discover that it's not going to be quite as bad as we're imagining it to be. Yeah. In addition, uh, perhaps you might also be aware that uh, Brandon Sanderson very politely and firmly called our Amazon's Audible label. And then there's the there's also the ever-present issue of plagiarism and rights infringement, which, quite frankly, this, this episode is going to be too small to encompass the enormity of, so we're, we're going to be just touching on it where it's relevant. Yeah. Now, if this all sounds like a chaotic jumble of just too much, don't worry. We are going to try and break it down for you. And you'll see that while there are areas where everyone needs to be conscious of the consequences of the choices they make, it's not actually the apocalyptic disaster that a few people are wailing online about, like profits. Um, So is there work to do? Yes. Um... Can AI be used ethically? Technically, yes. <laughs> no, it can be. It, it can, can be. be. This, this is what I'm going to say. Um, but what it means is taking a few precautions, being responsible for your actions, which we should all be doing anyway, and then being really transparent about what you use and how it, you know, how it was developed. You know, which we'll get into. In short, doing what we always urge you to do, which is asking questions and finding things out for yourself, doing your due diligence. Yeah. We'll start with the audiobook issue, which yeah. is strangely the least heavy of the two topics on offer here. Yes. So, firstly, there is nothing wrong with enjoying audiobooks. Um, and as a consumer, it makes sense to find the best service for you. Um, It is your money after all, and why wouldn't you stretch it as far as you can make it go? Yeah. Now, there is also a large section of the reading public who rely on audiobooks because that is the format with which they can engage most easily, um, or at all. Uh, So frankly, as an author, if you have the means to make an audio version of your work available, um, you are being more inclusive if you do so. Yeah. Now... At this point, I wish to recuse myself because I have tried pretty much all of the audio services I'm going to mention. And as a consumer, I completely understand why one specific one is head and shoulders above the others in terms of popularity. And basically, I want to consume as much fiction and non-fiction as possible in audio format. 
for as little of my income in exchange as possible. As a consumer, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me a bad person. It just means I have a hobby that could potentially get quite expensive and a limited amount of pocket money to spend on audiobooks. Ergo, I try to buy economically. But this is where we need to stop ignoring the elephant in the room and try to approach it because I am not just a consumer. I'm also a creator and I know what it's like to be on both sides of this. Yeah. So Audible, Amazon's audiobook imprint and store, is the largest producer and seller of audiobooks in the world. Yeah. Um, It cottoned on to the potential for expansion in the audiobook market way before anyone else did. Um, And it spotted the fact that downloadable and streamable content would quickly become the norm rather than the expectation. And at this point, it's important to note that the dragons are not having a pop. Sorry, not expectation. I meant exception. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Rather than the the norm, rather than the expectation makes no sense. I was like, wait a second, what did I just say? Um... You've got the thousand yard stare because I mentioned AI. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And anyway, at this point, it's important to note that both the dragons, neither of the dragons rather, see, I'm doing it now, (laughs) we're not having having a pop at Amazon or any of its subsidiary companies. We're not going to be using our influence to try and persuade anyone away from their services. And we are not engaging with ranty criticism on the subject. And because it would be pretty hypocritical if we did, since both of us are audible members. Yes. And while I have my membership paused at the moment, I have every intention of renewing it. (laughs) Um, I've been flirting around with a few others. I'll tell you how that went, because it's interesting. There might be something that suits someone else better. Yeah. Um, Basically, at the end of 2022, Mistborn and many other book series author Brandon Sanderson announced in his State of the Sanderson yearly update which I really want to steal. I want to make a state of the iron side update at the end of every year. (laughs) (laughs) That just sounds so fun. Uh, It would have been a bit epic in January, in fairness. Um, Anyway, he said that he would not be putting his upcoming audiobooks for his secret, for secret project books. He would not be putting them on Audible. And the way he phrased it was, he said, I like the people at Audible. I like a lot about Audible. I don't want to go to war, but I do have to call them out. This is shameful behaviour. It's a good company doing bad things. Their practices are squeezing indie authors to death. Yes. Uh, now, Sanderson was essentially referring to the fact that Audible pays only twi- uh, 25%. <laughs> <laughs> Lord almighty. <laughs> the machines really are taking over. Uh, t- 25% of royalties to its authors instead of the industry standard for digital products, um, i.e. games and ebooks, which is 70%. Yeah, so, you know, that is a drastic difference in in what people are paid i'm not sure you quite get 70 percent with places like kobo but it's a lot closer it's something like 60 or 65 i believe yeah uh, it's at least over 50 (laughs) percent yeah anyway so if an author goes exclusive with audible which means they cannot put their books anywhere else they get 40 percent which is still way below industry standard uh, with the additional that their books can only appear on audible they cannot be sold in any other market Yes. Um, and if an author author does a royalty share scheme uh, with an ACX voice artist, then the artist is compensated out of the author's share of the royalties. So a royalty share makes an author 
exclusive to Audible, therefore royalties would be 40%, but split two ways, with the author taking 20 and the narrator taking 20, while Audible bags 60%. Yeah, this is clearly not an even division of funds and labour. <laughs> yeah. In addition, up until comparatively recently, Audible allowed you to return any title within an 18-month window. So a customer could buy a book with credit or cash, listen to the whole thing, and then return it for a refund. What then happened was that the author would absorb the cost of this. So no matter what, Audible got paid, while the author paradoxically ended up owing them money because someone bought their book and then returned it. Negative royalties for a product created by an author, publisher, were a thing. <laughs> That's absurd. It's insane. And, you know, I've seen screenshots of it, and it happened mostly to indie authors. Not because they gave inferior products or things, but when you've got a publisher between you and the audiobook producer, i.e. Audible, then the publisher tended to absorb the impact. Yeah. So I know Shauna Maguire said, and Shauna Maguire is a top mid-list author. She's making enough to live off of, and she produces four books on average a year, if not more. Yeah. Um, she has a following in the hundreds of thousands, maybe even the millions. And she was saying that actually she doesn't really make much money from audiobooks. She likes to have them out there so that her fans who engage via the medium of, of audiobooks have the option. But she said, quite frankly, they barely break even. And a lot of that is down to Audible's generous re refunds policy. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, the, if Audible was absorbing the cost, then Audible would understandably go, no, after six months, you cannot return this audiobook. And if you've listened to 90% of it and then decided you don't like it, well, that's like eating 90% of a meal at a fancy restaurant and then refusing to pay. So no, yeah. you can't have a refund. If it's a case of someone's listened to 10% and gone, this really isn't for me, or this is very badly produced and then returned it, then that's a slightly different matter. That sort of sucks for the author, but it's a case of, no, they didn't like the meal you produced and they're not paying for it. Yeah. Um, when somebody buys four audiobooks, uh, listens to all of them, and then returns all of them one after the other, which is not infrequent, and I have seen blogs where people have said, get the most out of your Audible credits by doing the ex this exact same thing and ways to get free credits out of Audible because they want you to stay and keep paying their subscription. All of this doesn't hurt the company, it hurts the authors. Yes. So I'm not saying I've never returned an audiobook. There's one in particular where... I could not get past, I think it was 8%, and I tried several times, and it was just, it was partly that I didn't engage with the, the narrator, sometimes that just happens, but it was also the fact that there were all sorts of weird background sounds and things, and the quality was kind of off, so in the end, I returned it. Yeah, I think I've returned one audiobook where I, um, I sort of wanted it in advance so i ordered it in advance and then it and then when it dropped and it downloaded i listened to it and they had changed the narrator yeah um and it just wouldn't work which is why from this point onwards i always listen to the samples before i buy an audio yeah it was the same for me as well 
Um, yeah. So, you know, if you're not happy with a product, it is reasonable to return it. What's yes. not reasonable is to knowingly consume the product and then ask for a refund. That's stealing. Yes. Basically. And you're not stealing from the people you think you're stealing from. Yeah. So sad to say, many listeners took advantage of this loophole, particularly with blogs promoting this behaviour, saying this is how you get the money. And maybe they were doing it and not realising that actually the only person you're hurting is the person making the books that you love, that you want to listen to. Yeah. Um, and the narrators, in fact, if they're in a royalty share because you're taking money from them, they could end up owing as well. Um, <laughs> because they basically would spend a credit, get a refund and have the credit to spend again. And audiobooks aren't cheap. I mean, theoretically, you could buy an audiobook from Audible in the UK for just seven ninety nine, which is the same as what your monthly credit would cost. So yeah. you're already getting a humongous discount, and you can you better believe that Audible is not absorbing that cost. Yes. And all of this sounds pretty bad, but since Audible makes up 63% of the audiobook market, what are authors supposed to do? And what are audiobook consumers supposed to do? Yeah. Well, Jules, what are they supposed to do? <laughs> okay, well, there's two angles to look at it from. There's the audiobooks for authors side of things, and there's the audiobooks for consumers. Let's look at it from the author's perspective to start with. Yeah. So Audible is slowly adjusting its terms and conditions. Uh, last year saw them drastically overhaul their returns policy in a way that mostly prevented a negative royalty situation occurring, which is good. Yeah. Um, there is some negotiation in the works as regards royalties as well, but I'm not in the inner circle. In fact, I'm not even within smelling distance of the inner circle. Yeah. So um, I'm not going to risk queering the pitch by pronouncing an opinion on this. Basically, just keep checking the developments if you're thinking of putting an audiobook on Audible. You know, yes. keep up to date with your information. Yes. Um, and with that in mind, uh, should you even do that? Or should you try to be exclusively on non-Amazon-owned platforms? Uh, well, from a business perspective, if you want to be discoverable and sell your books, you cannot afford to snub Amazon. Sanderson is worth hundreds of millions, um, and he, he knew he would lose sales by not being on Audible. Um, you probably do not have that luxury. Sanderson was also very well established, obviously. Um, I think both of us would advise thinking very carefully about being exclusive to Audible. Um, you're probably going to be... Sorry, you're probably going to do better off if you're sort of wide instead. Yeah. If you're on as many platforms as possible. Yeah. Um, in fact, think very, very carefully about royalty splits. The, the way to look at it, and if this seems extreme, just think about, you know, go away and cost up what it would cost per hour for a finished audio, audio production. Yeah. Um, are you certain your audiobook will make at least £10,000, so about, what, dollars $16,000 in its first year? Most independent audio narrators charge per finished hour, but an, but an 80 to 100,000 word book would probably cost around 3,000 to 6,000 pounds to produce. Might be more if you get a really top narrator. Yeah. Um, you might not be the o you might not be the only one not getting paid. Um, inadvertently, you might not be paying another creator as well. Yeah. Um, and if you royalty share, you are locked into a seven-year contract whereby you are exclusive. Exclusive? You're exclusive to Audible for that, that seven years, which means 
you and your narrator get your narrator will get half your royalties for that entire period. So let's say yes. that, that the most unlikely scenario happens: you produce an audiobook, it's a fantastic success, your eBooks are selling like hotcakes, and everyone wants the audio edition. And you not only make back what you've earned, you then make a nice profit, and you continue to make that really nice profit year on year. Mm-hmm. You're only getting half of that profit. Yeah. Because half of it is going to your audio narrator and they've already, you, you've basically already paid them within the first year, but now they're getting paid another six times. Yeah. I'm not saying that, I mean, that that's the way the cookie crumbles if you decide to do a royalty share. So again, it might not be economically or financially the best idea in that respect either. No. But then, of course, if you've done the audio yourself, then great. (laughs) Yeah, there's only really you to consider. (laughs) I would say, and I've been looking into this, I don't have final figures and facts yet, and you know how I like my figures and facts, Mm -hmm. but um, do you consider selling directly from your own website? Uh, It's not that difficult to put a Shopify um, stand, effectively, up on your site and sell your audiobooks directly by linking them with something like Story Origin, um, or similar. Yes. Um, so yeah, get them on other retailers. Get them on places that basically lease the books out, like Scribed, or um, get them on other audiobook sellers like Kobo. But sell directly from your website because you can effectively, particularly if you make your own audiobooks as well. There's no reason not to do this. You put the audiobook up, and then you can run what sales you want when you want on it. People go to your website. You direct them there. Um, buy it. You can you can obviously charge a little bit less as well if you want to. Um, you're probably going to make more audiobook sales that way as mm. long as you direct people that and you're going to make more off per sale because you're not paying somebody to host it for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so essentially, you don't have to avoid Audible. Um, honestly, you shouldn't. Uh, but don't blithely assume you're going to make back your outlay um, in no time. Most authors never recoup their investment in audio formats via Audible, not as it currently stands. Yeah. Another thing, and this is a controversial one, is consider putting your audiobook on YouTube. If you uh, can yes. make sure, I mean, <laughs> if you can make sure you get enough followers, which I think at a thousand, then you you're sort of you, you could at that at that point with a thousand followers, you can then. Um, say, well, you're advertising off of my product, ergo, I want advertising money. Um, you can do very nicely in advertising money. And I have this from various authors who've gone, yeah, I started off putting my my audiobooks on on YouTube. And once they're established on YouTube, I then put them on other channels, mm-hmm. uh, various platforms and things. And they said it actually promoted the audiobook for me because people went, actually, I want a finished copy of this kind of thing. You know, the way that if you give out ARCs, people sometimes go, actually, I want a finished copy of this. Yeah. Um, so they did very well out of that. Uh, or you could just put up the first book and a prequel novella so people get the flavour of your style. If you're performing your own audiobook, this is also a good thing to do because people can get an idea of whether your voice is for them and whether the way you narrate is for them as well without the uncomfortable, I've just bought this on Audible and returned it because I didn't like it thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, with that in mind, actually, let's just very quickly talk about um, uh, audiobooks for consumers. So... You love audiobooks, right? Yeah, of course you do. Uh, You want your favourite authors to bring their entire catalogue out in audio format? Yes. 
then please, please do not cheat them. Yeah. Um, if you can only afford one subscription service and Audible is best for you, that is okay. But consider at least rating each audiobook you finish. Help make the authors discoverable. So it's like when Madeline and I do our Dissecting Dragons recommendations, we will quite often go, and it's a fabulous audiobook if you like it in audio format as well. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't listen to the whole book and then return it. Um, if you want more books than you can afford, there are free options that don't involve effectively stealing from the author. And you can use those in tandem. Yeah. Um, you might also, and this, well, we'll talk about libraries in a second, but uh, first of all, try other services. So, Kobo, um, Scribbit, Scrib, Scrub, why would they put a B and a D next to each other, Jules? <laughs> they want to trip you up, Madeline. They I do. think it's, I think it's scribed, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, I don't like it though. Uh, <laughs> Book Beats, um, Ord Fans, Audiobook, Audiobooks.com, etc. Now, I will just say, I'm not really doing a little review, but Kobo is fine. It's, I think it's like one pound more expensive a month and it's a credit system mm -hmm. again. They do run special offers where books are reduced to things like 5 99 etc. They do pay authors a better percentage of the royalties again not the industry standard but it's not it's not as bad mm -hmm. um, and their return policy is reasonable um, with scribed which i've been using a lot recently mm -hmm. you can listen to any book in their catalog and it's 9.99 a month which again is more expensive oh, okay it's 9.99 in the uk I'm not sure what it is in, in america but it will be the equivalent in dollars yeah um you don't actually buy the books. So if you don't care about buying the books, you just want to listen to them, then a subscription model like this might be quite good for you because they have a really great selection on their catalogue and you get ebooks and magazines and sheet music and stuff as well. Ooh. So all of that's really good. And I have enjoyed a lot of their books. The one thing I will say is that in order to compensate their authors fairly, what they will do is throttle what titles or in what genres you can access. So let's say you've gone through three epic fantasy titles a month of, of comparable authors. Mm -hmm. You might then find you can't have any more in that genre until your next billing period, but you can access horror, sci-fi, romance, etc. If you okay. see what I mean. Yeah. It really depends on how many audiobooks you get through in a month. Now, over the last few months, I've got through over 20 audiobooks a month. Yeah. In fact, I think there's been a minimum of 15 audiobooks a month since January <laughs> this year. So you, when I say this is the start of a potentially very expensive hobby, I hope people can understand <laughs> where I'm coming from. Um, it actually makes more sense for me to have a library membership, obviously, and to have at least two subscription models because you know not all books are available on all platforms or i really want the authors to be compensated properly but at the mm. same time i also need to feed this voracious habit yes um, and i'd rather support them by listening than not not doing anything at all yeah um another subscription service which is really good it doesn't choke what you can listen to but you can buy various different plans based on 
um, how many hours a month you listen. I think you've got a choice of 20, 50 or 100 hours per month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's BookBeat. And they're really good. They don't have quite such a big selection, but it's big enough that I think I would easily find something to listen to for an entire month, for six months at least. Yes. And they're, they're getting new books in all the time. They're really good. If you want just 20 hours a month with them, that's only five ninety nine. So for 20 hours, you could potentially listen to two to three audiobooks. Two to three audiobooks access for five ninety nine is very, very good value. Yes. yes. And again, the authors have been compensated. Um, if you want 50 hours, which let's say between four and five audiobooks a month, that's nine ninety nine. Again, still very good value. Um, Ord fans caters more towards indie authors. Um, I've only really tried it once, so I can't pronounce much of an opinion, but it does seem very good and the recommendation engine's good. Audiobooks.com, it was fine. It was like a poor, poorer version of Kobo. There's some great stuff on there. Um, you can try the service out and you'll get one free audio credit and you can try it and see if it's for you. It wasn't for me. So, yeah, I did some proper market research on this one, unwittingly, guys. <laughs> um, the other thing you can do, do you want your audiobooks absolutely free? Join your library. Join yes. your fucking library. Yes. Um, um, here in the UK, an author gets paid every time you borrow a book. That includes downloadable audiobooks and ebooks, and obviously books on CD. Um, libraries have recognised how much demand there is for these services, and most now have amazing selections of recent e-audiobooks and e-books on either Libby or BorrowBox or something similar, whoever their provider is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no n- limit to how many you can listen to in a month. I think you can ha- you can reserve ten books in a month, um, but once you listen to a book and you return it, then you get the slot back again. So you could comfortably just fill up your device with audiobooks from the library and listen all the way through the month without paying anything and the authors are still getting paid their their public um public royalties yes um the u.s model does vary a little i'm pretty sure that the author gets payment for the original licensing of the audiobook copy but doesn't necessarily get a payment per borrow but it's still better than than, than stealing the books okay yes um if you find a dicey copy of an audiobook that you believe was not properly produced, uh, please don't listen to it. Report it. If the author and the licensor are not getting paid, then listening to it constitutes stealing just as much as if you were to walk into Barnes & Nobles and take a book without paying. Yeah. Uh, we're not meaning to be preachy with this, and it's easy to get fooled on these things as well. But essentially downloading something when the author, the audio narrator and the publisher and whoever else is is not getting paid for it. I mean, you are effectively stealing. That's a pirated copy, probably. And I keep finding them on on YouTube. You have to be very careful on YouTube that the books have been uploaded by someone who has the right to actually upload that content because it can fly under the banner a little bit for a while. Yeah. YouTube are very good at taking things down once they know, but it is a huge company and they don't see everything. <laughs> yes. Um, finally, join author newsletters and um, ARC teams. Many authors give out codes for free audio ARCs. Many have free prequel audio novels. Um, you know, it's a great way to give a new author a try as well. 
Yeah, this is something I'll be doing with my newsletter. Once I've done the audio book of Dead Man's Hand, you will be getting it free as part of my newsletter. So if you sign up, you'll have the option to download the audio book or the ebook version of that prequel novella. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the subject you've all been waiting for. <laughs> AI in the room. <laughs> yeah. Now, from the sticky subject of audiobooks, we enter the thorny territory of artificial intelligence and publishing. There's been a lot of very reasonable concerns raised about AI and a lot of very loud outrage screeching too. So much that it can be hard to separate realistic expectations and probabilities from genuine scaremongering. So we're going to try and parse some of that for you, but we urge you to do your own research at your leisure too. And this doesn't have to be a scary thing. It really doesn't. We're going to give you some recommendations for places you can start. Yes. Um, little caveat. Uh, this is such a huge topic um, that there is no way we could cover everything in a single podcast episode. To that end, um, we suggest you check out the Creative Pen podcast, uh, where Joanna Penn speaks to various industry professionals um, about a variety of subjects, including AI. Uh, you can also check out the Alliance of Independent Authors for their blogs on the subject and the paper put together by the Society of Authors, who are currently lobbying the government here in the UK for better guidelines and legislation. So, with that, let's dig in. Let's dig in. What is it? <laughs> A white hole. Okay, Red Dwarf fans will get that. Um, <laughs> AI stands for artificial intelligence, and it refers to programs capable of, inverted commas, machine learning. These yeah. programs are already used in the publishing industry in a limited way. In fact, you've probably used AI yourself without realizing it. Any sort of spell checking or grammar checking program is artificial intelligence. Yes. So the bottom line is that AI is not automatically Skynet, um, and it doesn't have a mission to destroy humanity and usher in an age of machine global domination. At least not yet. Um, although let's just note that Elon Musk and Steve uh, Wozniak, along with 3,000 other AI experts, have signed their names to an open letter urging developers to pause creation of even more powerful systems until they can be sure that their effects will be positive um, and manageable. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, while that sounds like, oh, God, they are genuinely worried they'll create a Skynet, I actually think it's really encouraging that um, absolute billionaires are going, no, hang on a minute, we need to pull the reins on the horse on this one a little bit and be responsible. Um, that's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where some of the fear and misinformation does come in. A true artificial intelligence capable of passing the Turing test, that is, a test whereby in communication with a human, a human genuinely cannot tell the difference as to whether they're talking to an AI or to an actual hu another human. Mm -hmm. um, that type of AI has not yet been developed. No. We would have definitely have heard of it. But it's not outside or the Or would realm. we? <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> a little bit Twilight Zone. Um, yep. <laughs> maybe, we're, maybe we're all already AIs in a programme. Yeah. Just uh, sleep well tonight, my loves. Anyway, <laughs> getting back on topic. I've broken Madeline, sorry. Oh, Algorithm not responding. <laughs> it's not outside the realms of possibility, eventually. 
and that yes. carries all sorts of ethical and legal problems. For our purposes, the main issue is that our ability to play in this arena is vastly outstripped by the speed with which we can legislate for new discoveries. The law and governance is slower than scientific discovery. It should be because we don't want new laws passed willy-nilly without opposition and thorough discussion. Yes. But this does leave us at a disadvantage um, when we're in a grey area where no laws exist for the current situation with AI. Yes. For our purposes, uh, we're going to look at the benefits and drawbacks of AI on creative writing and the art industry and its professionals, therefore. Yeah. Um, just a final thing before we get to that. The yeah. onus is on scientists to be responsible and for users of new tech to do so ethically. Yeah. And many users violate the rights of others without even being aware that they are doing so. Yes. Okay. okay. So... <laughs> As examples, although there are many, many examples, we're just going to look at two, uh, and that is ChatGPT and Midjourney. Yes. Uh, so programs which finally kicked the hornet's nest over include the uh, the writing and sourcing software ChatGPT and art generating programs like Midjourney. Now, on the surface, there isn't actually anything wrong with these programs. They're engaging, they're fun to use, and they have the potential to really streamline the creative process. There's a big however attached to this. Yes, there always is. Um, <laughs> however, machine learning has to learn from somewhere. Just as humans who write or draw learn by examining, mimicking, and then innovating on the works of others, so does AI. Yeah, there have been countless cases of AI programs sourcing art and writing of living authors, which is copyright protected, and then regurgitating up a slightly amended creation. Original creation, that is. Yes. If you're not sure what I mean, try doing a simple Google on AI art infringement and you'll see dozens of images. It's not actually the AI's fault. This is the combination of user error and lack of proper parameters added to an absence of proper legislature. However, on the flip side, a lot of these programs can be effectively and ethically used to streamline the creative process by taking care of tasks that are time-consuming with low reward, but are very necessary. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can use ChatGPT as a research assistant, a fact checker, or to generate writing prompts, and it can be extremely helpful. And so that I'm not completely talking out of my arse here, I had a little go on it just to see exactly what it did. And I think you have to be very, you have to learn the way to ask very specifically what you want. Mm -hmm. And then you really need to fact check. So let's say I wanted to write a blog on, give me a subject, Madeline. Um, AI. <laughs> okay, let's say I wanted to write a blog on the Gothic and AI. Yeah. And I would ask it to give me five ideas of angles that I could go from. Mm -hmm. And it would spew out five potential different angles. Hopefully, and they would make sense as well. It doesn't always happen. And then I'd want to know what blogs on this subject were already out there. It would source them for me without me having to do a long internet search. Mm -hmm. At that point, you need to look at what's already out there maybe read a few to get an idea um, and then make sure that what you're writing adds something to the conversation and that you're not accidentally plagiarizing. Yes. Some people have gone ahead and said, can you give me an outline? And that's also okay as long as you double check that what you're using as an outline 
doesn't already belong to somebody else. I think where it's been a problem is when people have gone, oh, this is brilliant. I can get 5,000 words done in, in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, they're not your words. The whole point is you've got to take what it gives you and then apply the human perspective to it and also do the fact checking because you can't expect the machine to actually understand the parameters. It hasn't really been given the parameters. <laughs> you can't expect it to understand copyright infringement. It hasn't been programmed to understand that. That's you. That's on you, the human, to understand yes. that. That's that's not the machine's fault. Yeah. Um, let, so a couple of examples of this. There was recently a big uproar that, and this is not Sarah J. Mass's fault either, by the way, because authors generally don't have any control over what what their covers look like mm-hmm. um, but the paperback cover of house of earth and blood turned out to be gen- t- t- turned out that the the in-house design team had used an, a stock image that was actually generated by ai and had been marked as generated by ai and had potentially taken elements of somebody else's work in order to generate this image mm-hmm. um, unfortunately once it had gone into production that's it it's out there there's hundreds of thousands of copies um, Bloomsbury did release a statement apologising and saying, you know, we kind of just didn't know. And and that's where there is an issue, the, the fact that these things move along so quickly that people get sort of r- rolled over, you know, they get run yeah. down by the, the juggernaut that is the future, as it were. Yeah. So that, that was one issue. And it sort of highlights the need for anyone no matter how high up the food chain in publishing, to actually check everything. And again, where does this image come from? Is it really a stock image you can use? If it's AI-generated at the moment, I would say don't use it. Don't use an AI-generated image just because you cannot be sure whose work was used to train the machine learning behind it. So you might be accidentally infringing copyright without meaning to. So just don't use it. Yeah. Not until things get better and there's more transparency. Yeah. And it's not always actually easy to know whether an image is AI generated or not. Yeah, they're supposed to be marked and some sites don't don't allow it at all. But Yeah. If you're not sure, err on the safe side and don't do it. Yes. Um then there was Clark's World. Clark's World is one of the few really big um <laughs> sci fi and fantasy magazine um well, magazines, basically, that accept open submissions from anyone. So big name authors, but also absolute newbies to the field. They had to close their open submissions window recently because they were absolutely swamped with a bunch of really shit AI-generated stories. Again, this is not the AI's fault. What had happened was, in fact, you can see them. There are a bunch of real burks on YouTube and other places saying... You can make £5,000 a month if you do this. Um, You go in and you use something like ChatGPT or a similar writing program and you say what elements you wanted to have and it writes the story for you. And then they were submitting them. And I'm thinking, what absolute idiot does that? Genuinely, and and, and really thinks they're going to make money out of it. But the problem was they clogged up the system to the point where Clark's World is still currently closed to open submissions and they're trying to think of ways to exclude anyone from from coming at them with an AI-generated story. (laughs) And I have to say, if you read some of the AI-written stuff, it's absolutely hilarious. You can tell at the moment that it's not written by a human. You really can tell. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
honestly, if you really, if you're having a bad day and you really want to laugh, you need to look up some AI generated erotica because it's never been, I'm serious, it's, it's the funniest shit you can imagine. It is never been more apparent that it's written by something that has no experience of any kind of desire whatsoever and doesn't really understand human biology. Yes. Though, I mean, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, yes, there are certain erotica types. Yes, in fairness, yeah. But AI is still technically worse at the moment. Yes. <laughs> at the moment. No, look, there are pros to using AI. Believe it or not, everyone's kind of like, oh, and it's like, unfortunately, we need to acknowledge the fact it's not going away and it would be a lot better for your state of mind if you acknowledge that it can be kind of a writing partner rather yeah. than getting very anxious and upset about it and worrying that the industry you spent so long trying to break into is not going to be there instead of being like that and and you know giving yourself a stomach ulcer um just accept the fact that you know the monkey's paw has been wished on here so we've got to make the best of it yeah find a way of, of using it so yeah. one of the pros is enhanced productivity now if you're again if you're writing non-fiction or blogs and things it it can make a great research assistant as long as you fact check but the point is it's doing all the signposting and locating of sources and things for you that is really time consuming and i say this as someone who goes looking for very obscure chronicles and things for um, medieval historical fiction um, somebody who can do all that and go here's a list of sources that you might like to go through that would cut hours and hours off my my creating time yeah so that's useful <laughs> yeah of course what you do need to make sure is that you use it correctly because if you just ask it to for example give you a history of certain things um, that history might not actually be accurate or um, asking it to locate sources does tend to help but asking it just to give you information is where you might have the potential to have incorrect information uh, for the yeah. most part we'll, it's quite good but um, we'll, we'll but yeah but we'll talk about the cons in cons a second in a minute. <laughs> yeah um, um it can help with with language and grammar, it can also help with things like translation, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> but improved language and grammar, like we say, people are already using AI things um, to help with those with those issues, which, to be honest, is great. Yeah, and again, you have to do your fact checking, etc. Don't just use Google Translate. But let's say. This is something that Bellingcat did. Bellingcat is something I mentioned a while back, and they helped prove that, you know, that that plane that got shot down about 10 years or so ago mm -hmm. over Russia, and Russia was saying, oh, it wasn't us, etc. We wouldn't have had the capability. They actually proved that Russia was lying about that, and that they did. And they did it through um, essentially getting hold of open source photos and documents and things. And, you know, the guy had a basic understanding of Russian grammar and he had Google Translate and he managed to parse from one of the documents some of the important information that showed this. This is a very extreme example, but you're looking to translate something for ancestry. I don't know, maybe you've got a Polish grandfather or something and you're trying to work out if the photo you've got is actually him because you obviously you never met him. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it can help with things like that um, because you don't need something that's so exact you can publish it. You just need to know if you're looking in the right direction. Um, the other thing is, I have to say, if I'm writing something in Irish, and occasionally a word will just go. And I'm like, yeah, I've got the German version, I've got the French version, I've even got the Latin version. I can't remember the Irish one, it's just vanished. And Google Translate can help, and quite often it will give me three options. I'm like, that's the wrong word, that's the wrong word, that's the wrong word, and the fourth one down is the right word. Yeah. Mid-journey is actually quite good with translations. And I know this, It's I would apparently it is better, even better than Google Translate. Um, and this has been the experience with my dad, who, first of all, um, has to deal with legal documents from all sorts of countries and things like that. He travels an incredible amount. And obviously, um, I, my mother was French. Um, so he's entirely English. Well, not entirely, but you know what I mean. He's English. Um, and he has to help deal with sort of the French side of things because we've got this whole French side of the family and, and all sorts of stuff that's happening with that. Um, uh, and, so he ends up getting a lot of documentation in French. Um, and he has to reply with a lot of documentation in French. Now he can sit down and translate it himself, which could take a, a, a certain while, or he can just pop it into mid-journey and it will translate it for him very fast and usually quite accurately. Yeah. Um, that's useful. And if it's the same thing, if you are writing or you're trying to get research and you've got something which is in another language um, that you need to sort of be translated quickly into English, Midjourney can help you with that. Um, it might not be 100% accurate, but it will save you a lot of time. <laughs> It'll generally give you the gist. And then yeah. on the improved language and grammar thing, we obviously have a lot of people uh, living and working in the UK, who English is not their first language, and while they are improving their their command of English and you know their understanding of idiomatic sayings and things by speaking, um, when it comes to writing in English, which you are still required to do in a lot of jobs, uh, things um, you know AI generated programs that can check their their grammar and language are invaluable. To be honest, anything that can check your spelling and stuff for writers is invaluable. Yeah, um, you know it doesn't. Even if English is your first language, like it is with mine, having something like that is very, very helpful. It really is. Definitely. Um, I mentioned the time-saving aspect. It is time-saving. There's there's lots of aspects to writing a book and things that can take a very long time. And it doesn't mean that you're cutting corners if you find a way to condense that, as long as, again, you're doing your due diligence. Yeah. Um, I've never tried this one myself, but the whole idea of reducing writer's block a lot of people found they got unstuck by saying, this is happening in a story, to chat GPT. Um, I need a selection of ways to get out of it. And as long as they've put in stuff like this is, this is this um, genre, this is this style, etc. By style, I don't mean a specific author's style or anything. I just mean this is the, you know, the sort of feel, the mood. Um, it comes up with suggestions. And some of them are ridiculous. And some of them made whoever it was think, oh, actually, I can't do that, but I could do something which is very similar to that, and it helped. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like it's going, yeah, writing novels is easy now, I barely do anything. Um, and to be fair, there are an awful lot of authors out there who go, yeah, writing novels is easy, I provide an outline and someone else writes it. I mean, this is 
that, that that's something that's already happening. Someone else is already doing the hard work for some authors. Yeah, I remember Barbara Cartland, who's a, a famous women's fiction author and romance author. Um, quite apparently, she used to settle herself down for writing during the day on a chaise long, <laughs> and she'd have an amanuensis who wrote by hand, and she would say she'd say a few lines and then say, "Yes, take that down," but you know, tidy it up a bit. And then she'd have a little bit of a think and a few chocolates, maybe a sip of tea, and then she'd say a few more things. And that was how all her books got written. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, before we start, like, looking cockeyed at, at AI, we need to say the whole sort of, like, abuses in the industry thing have kind of been going a long, long time anyway. That doesn't yeah. mean they're okay, but this might actually help. Um, yes. Customization and personalization, depending on how intimate you want to get into get with your your AI research or writing partner, um, you can you can train it to sound like you if you're writing letters and things. That's something I don't really want to get into, but some people are happy to do that, and that's up to them. It is technically an advantage. Yeah, um, we talked about language translation. I can really understand the content organization and structure. So if you are an influencer or something, a program that can spit back um, five or six or even 10 blog ideas to you in 20 seconds is really useful. And then you can look at the popularity of similar blogs and go, well, that one's more likely to, to hit than the others. So I won't waste my time. I'll write that one. Yeah. You see what I mean? So it's learning it's learning how to use these tools as actual tools and to use them intelligently in a way that is ethical. Yes. Um, there's also things like education and accessibility. Yeah, um, you can obviously educate yourself. Accessibility. Honestly, AI has done more for helping people who are disabled in some way to access the same tools. Um, for things like writing and content production than than many other you know more mundane programs have. Um, there's also the analytics and data-driven insights. If you are a numbers person and you want to see how well something's performing, it's it's excellent for that. Yeah. Um, the multifunctionality, again, you can use it in many different ways. Um, you're not getting a program that just gives you ideas. You're getting a program that gives you ideas and can give you the data and the analytics on how effective something is likely to be so you know whether you're wasting your time it's yeah. also an economic option and i know people hate this and this is going to make people go ah but for some some authors starting out right away cannot afford a full production team a creative editor uh, a proofreader an actual line editor and a, co a cover designer and they have to pick what to spend the money on and nine times out of ten it should be the cover yeah. Because writing a book is an investment in either time or money, or both, mostly. So if you've got something that can check for most of your mistakes and most of your grammar and your spelling, whatever, and you've got a friend who you can you know, swap tasks with, who can also catch anything that gets missed, it's more cost-effective. Yes. I realise it's a dirty word, but you know what? Writing a book, if you're doing it to industry standards, can be very expensive. Yes, um, very expensive, time-consuming, and 
the fact is that we talk about sort of AI as if it's only just appeared in the last few years, and it's not. We have been using AI. AI has been incorporated into a lot of the um, systems, the programs that we have already been using, which we have found to be useful. Um, and when talking about AI, we look at the extremes, um, particularly the extremes of some of the issues that have happened with some of the big ones, like we said, the the programs that kicked over the hornet's nest. Yeah. So, okay, with that in mind, we do also obviously need to recognize the cons of using AI. Um, the first one is, of course, reliability and accuracy. Like I was saying earlier, um, depending on how you use AI, you open yourself up to the potential of getting information wrong. Um, I don't actually, I'm just going to come out and say that I don't actually use anything like chat, chat GBD, uh, GPT, um, or AI at the moment myself, um, beyond things like Grammarly occasionally. No, I can't um, say I do. And it, it's, it, it's a case of, I want it to get, I'll, I'll explain why I don't, but I had to have a play with it so that I could actually say what my experience was, if you see what I mean. But yeah, yeah on, the, on the regular, no, yeah. it's a spell checker. <laughs> yeah, but I do know people who did, who have used it just to sort of get kind of brief bits of information while they've been traveling, for example, like, oh, what's the history of this place? Or, oh, they talk about this battle. What's the history of this battle? Well, I've got my phone. Let me just type it in and ask and it'll, and it'll be given to me in a concise way without me having to scroll through and find an article, etc. You know, just to get basic information. Um, and they did sort of find this whole thing at one point where there was just this one glaring, glaring mistake. This is, um, and, but it was a very important mistake, which actually meant that later on, when they were reading things in a museum, they went, well, hold on a second. This person wasn't, this, the museum says this person wasn't alive. Yet yeah. in ChatGPT, there was a whole thing about them leading an army, etc. Um, the information was incorrect and ChatGPT was wrong. And ChatGPT will literally say, I don't always get things right because it's an AI. Just uh, And to be honest, humans won't always get things right either. <laughs> information yeah. can be incorrect. So you do need to be conscious of how you use it and not fall into this idea, which is because it is a machine, it will automatically get you 100% accurate data because depending where it draws that data from... Um, that could be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the big cons is obviously potential plagiarism and copyright infringement. Uh, we obviously talked about art where the AI has been trained by looking at various other types of art by various different artists, etc. And the same with writers. The same with voice artists. That's a big one at the moment. Mm. Um, uh, while we were talking about Audible earlier, Audible does not allow audiobooks that are created by um, AI voice artists. And some of them are getting very good now, you know, deep fake level good. Yeah. Um, now, before we applaud Audible too much for that, let's note that this is because Audible is starting its own program of AI narrators. And that's why it doesn't allow them. <laughs> Honestly, I... I'm in two minds about this. I understand if you want to be inclusive and you want to put audiobooks out there and you find a really good AI program, you can afford to do it that way. 
Yeah. However, I also completely see the point of people who are professional audio narrators, many of whom hate authors who narrate their own books, by the way, and are quite vitriolic about it. But even so, I understand because they're talking about their livelihood changing or what have you. Um, I don't have an answer to that other than you've just got to do the best you can and you know, everybody should try and encourage the use of, of human creators where possible and where affordable. Yeah. It, it is a big thorny issue and we are going to see more audiobooks produced by AI narrators. We just are. As I said, Audible have their own company. Other um, platforms do allow AI narrators and a lot of them are so good now you wouldn't necessarily know. The transparency is the important thing. If you don't want to support an AI narrator, it should be very clear on the audiobook that it was narrated by AI, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, sorry, I've, I've fallen into the, the transparency and bias thing, but, you know, the transparency is if something's created by AI, we should know it's created by AI so we can make informed decisions. Yeah. And where I have kind of an issue is AI, which is being created um, in to, to sound like another person. Yeah when it's when it's essentially mimicry and yeah. also you know using someone's voice without their consent to train the machine learning is also unethical in the same way that using their writing to train uh, machine learning or their artwork all of those things are wrong because once your voice or your writing or whatever is there it's part of that machine's programming part of its learning it cannot be undone and taken away Ergo, if it's been used with or without your consent, you should be compensated for that financially. Yeah. And it's not the same as, uh, for example, people try and say, well, it's the same as, you know, an artist looking at the masters and stuff like that and learning from them. It's like, yes, but I would like to point out that when an artist is looking at somebody else's work and taking and, and sort of learning from that style and stuff like that, they still have to use their own hand. Yeah. And everything they produce is going to be a little bit unique. And the whole point is that they are being pushed to learn from this and then develop something new. But the fact is that AI can't do that. It can't do that with voices and things like that because it doesn't have an individual voice box. It doesn't have the human flaw, which is the human flaw cannot copy something perfectly. AI can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, obviously, this can lead to unemployment and creative professions, um, but there's also issues with data privacy and security. Yeah, I mean, the unemployment and creative professions, yes and no. Um, mm. It may actually mean that the in creative professions that your job changes. Um, and that's actually no different to the way things changed when navigation systems altered or when, you know, long distance truck drivers and things, things change with them. Or um, honestly, when, when woolen mills started using machines rather than, than human workers, etc. Um, and it really does suck. And we should absolutely put things in place so that it makes the transition as smooth as possible. Um it might actually, on the flip side of that, uh, actually enhance creativity 
because people will have to do more in order to stand head and shoulders above above what, what's generally being produced. Yeah, it is one of those weird things because from the one side, um, as from the side of, of coming it with, with, you know, um, a learning disability and things like that, having narrative tools, which, you know, because at the moment we use things like that uh, just for, for just for working we've got people who have readers and stuff like that who read stuff out to them and having voices which are more and more and more lifelike um and things like that and can actually pass um really helps with being able to understand and and, and read things um so i like the idea of the development of that technology in that sense and i also think that from the perspective of you know indie authors and stuff like that who cannot afford to do to pay for for a narrator um and who cannot do it themselves them wanting to still make their work accessible is great that's a positive thing more accessibility is always good but the problem is yes then you've got your turning around and saying but what about the value that is provided by real voice actors um who are already kind of being sort of shifted out of what they're worth with models like audible etc um what's happening then are they being squeezed out? And I think realistically is even if um, we continue on the way, on the, the direction we're going, it will still be a very long time, a very, very long time before any kind of artificial intelligence can narrate a book to the same degree that a human can. Because they audio, because it cannot understand using different voices for different characters. It won't necessarily understand who is speaking when. That requires human knowledge, human understanding. There is no sort of AI-generated narrator who will ever be able to read something like Stephen Fry can read something, you know? Yeah, um, um, some of them are getting pretty close, frankly. Yeah. But I, I, I just don't think that it'll ever be quite... It, or rather that we're still a long way off from it being quite the same level I do still think that for the most part narrators and stuff like that will continue to be open in the same way that you know people we now have Kindles and stuff like that we now have ebooks and things like that but people still love a good hardback cover people yeah, still love it, a paperback cover <laughs> it becomes a God, An this, this, this is weird. I watched Daybreakers recently, and the whole pre premise of Daybreakers is that everyone's a vampire now, and humans are almost an in, in extinct species, so they're kind of kept in, in farms, which is really gross. Um, but they're trying to come up with a synthetic blood substitute because ultimately humans are going to die out and all the vampires will die. Um, and there's one point where... Sam Neill's character goes, yeah, but realistically, someone will always pay top dollar for the real thing. And that's very true. It's a mark of quality to say, I can have this, I can have this exclusive first edition in hardback with gold leaf, etc. I can have this voice artist who has voiced some of the greatest audiobooks of their generation. I can afford January Lavoie, I wish. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
So yes, the the scene will definitely change, but it's not. There's going to be a difference. I think what Madeline's getting at is the emotional resonance. There is a big difference to someone who makes an emotional connection to the text they're reading, and someone who just reads it. Even if they read it with great intonation, etc., there is a difference to someone who feels it. Yeah, and I I don't know of any audible or audio. Uh, sorry, AI narrators who can put on different voices for each of the different characters. No, they they can actually do that now. I'm sorry to burst can your they? bubble on this one. Yeah, they are, can are you, actually. Really? Yeah. I am. Um... Yeah, there is a. It's in beta. There, I can't remember the name of the thing, but you can you can buy a subscription model and you can basically customize it however you want. So sorry, I, but oh, that I, exists. I suppose that yeah, you'd have to program when it sounds like that. It, it wouldn't know it automatically. You would have to be the one who input all of that information. Yeah, but five hundred quid a year for the top level subscription is a lot cheaper than £5,000 for a finished audiobook if you see yes. my point so so yes um, I, I'm not coming down on either side of this argument, I see both perspectives I hope I won't ever have to make that choice yeah um, yeah, the data privacy and security, just don't put anything that you don't want the entire internet to know into an AI program or in fact anywhere on the internet yeah, you, you're not doing something privately you're shouting at the universe okay just assume that you are just the same as you were before just be sensible um, and the global domination we are kidding mostly <laughs> yeah still haven't okay quick note about plagiarism yeah which um honestly it's a topic that's so pertinent to what we do we should have already done an episode on it but in short plagiarism and copyright infringement go hand in hand and refer to the act of taking someone else's work and passing it off as your own Mm -hmm. that's very oversimplified but that's the gist copyright states that intellectual property belongs to the creator for the term of the copyright in the uk with regard to writing that's the writer's lifespan plus 70 years after that material is considered in common use while it's in copyright, the holder has the exclusive right to the material and its exploitation, and it may not be used or reproduced without the written consent of the holder and usually some financial compensation. Now, this includes art, writing of any kind, film, television, etc. Yeah, the only exception is educational use, but even then, you've got to be a bit careful. Yeah. Um. Basically, the quotes writers use as epigraphs fall under copyright law. So you'll notice that when I use a copy, when I use an epigraph, I make sure it's out, outside of copyright or I've contacted the author and said, can I please use this? A lot of people assume you can just put whatever you want as an, an epigraph. But if it's within copyright, you, you do actually need to pay the author for use of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. Good to know. Uh, we should say that titles are never covered by copyright. Neither are the broad themes or ideas of a piece of work. Though if you use someone else's ideas in a recognisable way, you may find yourself in a court. Or you might get away with it, but it's still a bit of a dick move, so don't do that. Yeah. Uh, going back to AI, this usage without copyright holders' permission of art and literature to train AI is an infringement of copyright law. There's no real argument against this. No matter what developers are saying, they should be compensating every person they have u- whose work they have used to train artificial intelligence. Yes. So, what should happen? Yeah. Well, authors' consent should be sought and obtained prior to their work being used. Simple. Pro- 
prior, you know, before being the really important part there. Yeah. <laughs> because the system should be opt in, not opt out. So it shouldn't be a case of we're assuming you're consenting unless you say otherwise. It should be we assume you do not consent unless you contact us and say otherwise, or we contact you and you agree. Authors should have clear rights to object to deep fakes or in the style of imitations. And developers should be required by law to publish the sources used to train their artificial intelligence programs. Yeah. It should be recognised that sources already used have violated copyrights and authors should be compensated fairly for this. And any future use should be within copyright law. Finally, well, not finally, but there should be transparency over authorship, recognising that machines cannot yet be authors. Yeah, so while something is it's kind of a double standard, but it is one that does apply. So a human is an author, something produced by a machine is not produced by an author. Ergo, it is not, held, it is not protected by copyright law. The programme might be, but the actual whatever work it's produced is not. Um, publishers and creators should be mindful of the value of supporting human creators. That's a big one. And as yes. we say, there will always be people who pay for the real thing just for the cachet of having the real thing or because of the quality. Um, but where you can support human creators. Yeah, completely agree. Look, to quote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I think the genie is well out of the bottle on this one. Pandora's box is sitting with the lid flung open. It can't be undone. So whatever your opinions on AI, I'm afraid it's not going away. And I'm afraid you've probably actually already used it. been using it for years without realizing yeah. <laughs> it. Um, it's far better not to adopt an, a them versus us attitude. Um, instead, think of AI as a creative partner um, and use it ethically where appropriate. Um, now, at present, machine learning cannot create books and literature. A human is still necessary for nuance, life experience, and empathy. Maybe that will change. Maybe it won't. But the best thing you can do is, firstly, write the books that you love and make them as good and creative as you can. AI might increase the amount of dross, so truly creative and nuanced works will be more precious and sought after. Yeah. Consider using AI to improve your productivity. You can't yeah. beat them, join them. <laughs> yeah. But ethically. Yeah. Pivot, you should be willing and able to adapt. Um, and now it is necessary. Yeah. Uh, I, I think advocate for your rights, but don't be consumed by bitterness. I mean, the thing is, it, it's there. It's not going away. You can't control the entire universe. So you've got to think about your sphere of influence and your sphere of control. And where they overlap in the Venn diagram, that's the bit you focus on. And the rest of it, you've got to let it go. Yeah. Things will settle down. Yeah. We are currently in a grey period, but laws and protections will come. So keep creating. That really is the true act of defiance. Um, keep yourself up to date and informed. That's really important. And, you know, the sources we've already cited and several that they themselves will mention will also keep you on top of it. Legislation is coming. Okay, so it is being done. Someone is tackling this. You can add your voice to them. There's petitions and things you can sign. So if you want to be active in that way, you can absolutely do that. Um, don't be overly anxious about it. So be cautious, but don't be fearful. 
if you can possibly avoid it. Um, finally, I'll finish with an anecdote. It's a very cheesy 80s film called War Games that Alan made me watch recently. And mm-hmm. basically, it's this kid who is very intelligent, but he's kind of crap at school because he's just bored. And he hacks computer networks and things for fun. He accidentally hacks something to do with the <laughs> the defense network in America. Um, but what comes up is an early AI. And this AI has been trained with games, games like, you know, typical games like Snakes and Ladders and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then at the very bottom of the list, it's been gradually trained towards something called war games. <laughs> and then uh, total total global nuclear um domination and he sort of went okay we'll play that one not realizing that what he was doing is actually accidentally giving this ai a series of commands telling it to take over and nuke various companies and the whole thing turns into this massive race against time in order to try and get the computer to understand it's not a game and it's got to stop it Um, because it doesn't understand it doesn't have the way of differentiating between situations you've got to think its reality is completely different and it's not alive in the same way so it there's this great bit where they finally find the creator of the original ai program and he said well look i I gave up because in the end i could never teach the computer that sometimes you can't win a game and it will just keep playing the game until it wins because it believes its objective is to win which is bad when there are nuclear warheads attached yeah so in the end, the kid manages to get the AI, early AI computer, to run um, simulations of what would happen if it did do a nuke pattern. And it goes through hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them in, in seconds. And all of them end with America kind of being wiped out as well, because that's what happens when everybody's got nukes and everyone fires at each other. And finally, the computer gets to the point where it goes, the only way to win this game is not to play, and it shuts everything down. <laughs> I think it really highlights the idea that ultimately with with any sort of computer system, artificial intelligence and machine learning, the fault always lies with the programmer and with mm. the user. So you need to understand the language that you're speaking in, in both instances. Yeah. So, slightly hefty topics, and we're sorry for that, but we look like we were like living under a rock if we didn't mention it at some point. Yes. Um, and the point is to actually also to alleviate kind of worries or things like that. If you don't currently really use AI that much, then that's okay. You don't have to suddenly start using it. Um you might suddenly turn around and go, oh, wait, I have been using AI, I've been using Grammarly this whole time, or something like that. That's fine as well. Um, just be conscious of what's happening, of how it works, what it can do for you. Um, and where possible, I think the, the famous thing to always do to, to think about is just to be kind. And being kind means... Avoiding programs which are exploiting or using or infringing upon the rights and the work of others without compensation. Yeah. Um, Etc. Yeah, definitely. Um, And it's just, you know, don't just use things blithely. Be, Be conscious of what you're doing. And yeah. It's, it's not going away, so 
find find ways to live with it, basically. Yeah. But it, it isn't something that you need to be desperately afraid of either. It's got a long way to go still. Yes. Okay. So on that note, hopefully Madeline's got a really good, <laughs> a really good recommendation for us to take our mind off this this entire topic. I do actually. Um, I've got a rather sweet series recommendation, um, which I've been watching. It's it's kind of coming out um, on uh, Netflix at the moment, and it's a series called My Happy Marriage, which sounds a bit silly. Uh, but it is a it's based on a, a series of Japanese light novels it's a, it's an anime and it is basically a, a Cinderella retelling um, it's very sweet it's gentle tone the art is beautiful um, and it, it's it's just an enjoyable watch. It, the episodes are released weekly, so if you have Netflix, you can watch it on that. And I do recommend it. I have actually been really enjoying it. So much so, I actually thought I'm actually going to go and read uh, the graphic novel. So, um, yeah, I do recommend it. Um, oh, that sounds it, really sweet. It, it is actually <laughs> sweet quite wholesome. sweet. It is sweet and wholesome. It definitely has some very sad moments, but it's the point is that it's she's had a sad beginning, but now things are getting better for her, and it's very nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, good. That sounds like the perfect note to end on. Yes. <laughs> As always, we are very eager to hear your thoughts, uh, your opinions, um, any information that you think that we've missed or not considered. Please do get in touch with us. But until then, we will say thanks very much for listening, and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.